I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we scan all of scripture to discover what's being explored in any specific topic. We are approaching the end of the book of Leviticus. And as we do so, keep in mind that these closing chapters of the book of Leviticus are geared towards directing the communal worship of the community of Israel. But alongside that, they are geared towards shifting Israel from tribes and clans to a nation that supersedes them all. Two lessons ago in chapter 23, we read of the festivals that Israel was to celebrate as national holidays, festivals that honor Hashem that bring the community together in one place, and that are times when even the least of these are provided for and lifted up for a time to participate and celebrate. Times that affected everyone in the community as they were all expected to participate. Last lesson in Leviticus 24, we saw the topic of the chapter take a shift for a bit. Up until now, throughout the book of Leviticus, the text has covered the priests and how they were to conduct the worship services to Hashem the things that they needed to make the people aware of and that they needed to oversee. And we saw several topics that were hit rather hard in the beginning. Sacrifice and worship. Who, what, when, where, and how were all addressed in these instructions, and it gave us a deeper insight into our own worship of the Father. Then there was the topic of uncleanness, this natural state and occurrence that we all find ourselves in from time to time. And this topic taught us of our own fallen nature, the vast gulf that exists between God and man, and the need that we have for a Savior to cleanse us of our uncleanness and to defeat the death that dwells in our world and in our flesh. Then there was the topic of holiness, how we are to act towards others while in relationship with God, how we are to represent Him and His qualities to the world, and living our lives as a reflection of the holiness that's been given to us is the primary way that we accomplish that. And between each of these sections, the four topics of Leviticus all came together and merged for a time in passages regarding the priesthood. So last lesson, when we got to chapter 5, we noticed something completely different. No longer was the priesthood the primary area of discussion. Instead, the topic became about the governance of the people. The leaders and judges of Israel that were to oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the nation outside of the tabernacle and the considerations of worship. And as we'll get into today's text, we'll see the same thing being reflected. Not that the things of government have nothing to do with worship, but that the things of government have to do with stewardship, justice, mercy, and compassion. So let's read Leviticus 25 and then talk about the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25 And Hashem spoke to Moshe on Mount Sinai, saying, 
Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall observe a Sabbath to Hashem. Six years you sow your field, and six years you prune your vineyard and gather in its fruit. But in the seventh year the land is to have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to Hashem. Do not sow your field and do not prune your vineyard. Do not reap what grows of its own of your harvest, and do not gather the grapes of your unpruned vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be to you for food, for you and your servant and your female servant and your hired servant, and for the stranger who sojourns with you, and for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its crops are for food. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. You shall then sound a shofar sound on the tenth day of the seventh new moon on Yom HaKippurim, Cause the shofar to sound throughout all your land, and you shall set the fiftieth year apart and proclaim release throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It is a yovel for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you return to his clan. The fiftieth year is a yovel to you. Do not sow, nor reap what grows of its own, nor gather from its unpruned vine. It is a yovel. It is set apart to you. Eat from the field its crops. In the year of this yovel, let each one of you return to his possession. And when you sell whatever to your neighbor or buy from the hand of your neighbor, do not exploit one another. According to the number of years after the ovel, you buy from your neighbor, and according to the number of years of crops, he sells to you. According to the greater number of years, you increase its price, and according to the fewer number of years, you diminish its price, because he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. And do not oppress one another, but you shall fear your Elohim, for I am Hashem, your Elohim. And you shall do my laws and guard my right rulings and shall do them. And you shall dwell in the land in safety. And the land shall yield its fruit, and you shall eat to satisfaction and shall dwell there in safety. And since you might say, What do we eat in the seventh year, since we do not sow nor gather in our crops? Therefore I have commanded my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth crops for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat the old crop until the ninth year. Eat of the old until its crop comes in. And the land is not to be sold beyond reclaim, for the land is mine, for you are sojourners and settlers with me. And provide for redemption for the land, in all the land of your possession. When your brother becomes poor and has sold some of his possessions, and his redeemer, a close relative, comes to redeem it, then he shall redeem what his brother sold. And when the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale, and return the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he shall return to his possession. And if his hand has not found enough to give back to him, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Yovel. And it shall be released in the Yovel, and he shall return it to his possession. And when a man sells a house in a walled city, then his right of redemption shall be at the end of the year after it is sold. His right of redemption lasts a year. But if it is not redeemed within a complete year, then the house in the walled city shall be established beyond reclaim to the buyer of it. Throughout his generations it is not released in the Yovel. The houses of villages, however, which have no wall around them, are reckoned as the field of the country. A right of redemption belongs to it, and they are released in the Yovel. As for the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possessions, the Levites have a right of redemption forever. And that which is redeemed from the Levites, both the sale of the house and the city of his possession, shall be released in the year of Yovel, because the houses in the city of the Levites are the possession in the midst of the children of Israel. But the field of the open land of their cities is not sold, for it is their everlasting possession. And when your brother becomes poor and his hand has failed with you, 
Then you shall strengthen him, and he shall live with you like a stranger or a sojourner. Take no interest from him or profit, but you shall fear your Elohim, and your brother shall live with you. Do not lend him your silver at interest, and do not lend him your food for profit. I am Hashem your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim to give you the land of Canaan, to be your Elohim. And when your brother who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, do not make him serve as a slave, but as a hired servant. As a settler he is with you, and he serves until the year of Yovel. And then he shall leave you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own clan, even return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Mitzrayim. They are not sold as slaves. Do not rule over him with harshness, but you shall fear your Elohim. And your male and female slaves, whom you have from the nations that are around you, from them you buy male and female slaves, and also from the sons of the strangers sojourning among you. From them you buy, and from their clans who are with you, which they shall bring forth in your land, and they shall be your property. And you shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you, to inherit them as a possession. They are your slaves for all time. But over your brothers, the children of Israel, you do not rule with harshness over one another. Now when a sojourner or a settler with you becomes rich, and your brother with him becomes poor, and sells himself to the settler or sojourner with you, or to a member of the sojourner's clan, after he has been sold, there is a right of redemption to him. One of his brothers does redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son does redeem him, or anyone who is a close relative to him in his clan does redeem him, or if he is able, then he shall redeem himself. But he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold to him until the year of the Ovel, as the days of a hired servant it is with him. If there are yet many years according to them, he repays the price of his redemption from the silver of his purchase. And if few years are left until the year of Yovel, then he shall reckon with him, and according to the years he repays him the price of his redemption. He is with him as a yearly hired servant, but he does not rule with harshness over him before your eyes. And if he is not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released in the year of Yovel, he and his children with him. Because the children of Israel are servants to me, they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Mitzrayim. I am Hashem, your Elohim. Two chapters ago, as we began this portion on the communal worship of Hashem, we read of the festivals that are to be practiced by Israel. And to begin that chapter, the text began by describing a Sabbath that is to be enjoyed by all of Israel every week. So when we get to this chapter, we read of another Sabbath. A Sabbath that is to be enjoyed by the land. Not every week, but every seven years. And just as the weekly Sabbath is an act of faith that we can cease from doing and God will provide in a much larger way, this Sabbath is an act of faith that God will provide, even when we cease sowing the land. For what does it mean that you don't sow your fields for a year? It means that you don't have crops to eat from or to sell to others. It means that your income, your bottom line, might be hurt. It means that for a time you might be placed on a level playing field with the vagabond and the beggar in your midst. In fact, that's what verse 5-7 through seven states clearly. You, your servants, the poor, the strangers, even your animals are all on equal footing in this year, as they are all to go out to the field for their food from the produce that volunteers on its own. This Sabbath year, or Shemitah year, is a year of equalization placing everyone on the same footing of trusting in God for their food. Not just food. For the farmer, this command meant a loss of income for the year. No harvest means nothing to sell. 
And to an agrarian-based economy and society, the worst fears would be that this could spell serious hardship. I mean, how many of you could simply sit back and not work at your trade every seven years for a full year? Would you have the faith to sit back and allow your means of income and food to simply do its own thing? To go without the main source of income for an entire year? Well, we read in the book of Jeremiah that Israel did not practice the Shemitah and the Jubilee years that we read of here. This is one of the reasons that's given for the 70 years of captivity in Babylon in Second Chronicles 36, 20-21. And it says, And those who escaped from the sword he exiled to Babylon, where they became servants to him and to his sons, until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of Hashem by the mouth of Yeremiahu, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay waste, she kept Sabbath, until seventy years were complete. And it's easy to sit back and to judge Israel for their lack of faith during this time. But the fact of the matter is, I'd be willing to bet that very few of us would have had the faith to take this step and trust that God would indeed care for us. Moving on in verse 8, we read that the seventh year rest is not something that happens in isolation, but that it builds upon itself and then it culminates in a time that requires a double portion of faith. Two years in a row of letting the land rest, a year of reset and return, and then a year of jubilee, or in the Hebrew, the year of Yovel. Now, the year of jubilee is a fascinating study in some ways. For example, no one really knows when the year of Jubilee is. Now, there are some who have worked to attempt to discern this, but even with all of the points of data, there's still no guarantee that they are correct. One thing that we notice with the year of Jubilee is that the accounting that is used to arrive at this year is the same accounting that's used to arrive at the holiday of Shavuot. 7 times 7 plus 1. With this math, both Shavuot and the Jubilee provide for us a picture of an ultimate eighth. Now, a few months back, we went through the significance of the eighth as we find it in Scripture. It is a sign or a pointer to a new beginning, a fresh start or new creation. And so when we get to a seven that is multiplied by seven with one added to it, we should recognize that the event being described is an ultimate culmination of new creation and fresh beginning. And in verse 10, that's exactly what we read. In the fiftieth year, a release is to be proclaimed throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. Everyone is to return to the land of their ancestors to take possession of the land that had been given to their clan from the beginning. This return applies to everyone, and as we'll see, there are implications to this that were far-reaching. Now in verse 14 through 19, we read something else that's interesting. None of the land in Israel was to be sold to someone forever. And we read in this chapter that the purpose for this is because the land did not actually belong to the people at all. It belongs to God, and he is the one who determines what is to be done with the land. Leviticus 25:23. And the land is not to be sold beyond reclaim, for the land is mine, for you are sojourners and settlers with me. So what we read here is that the land that was sold to another was to be sold in such a way as to not pass into their hands forever. The land was to be sold according to the number of years that remained until the next Jubilee release. There was always to be an awareness throughout the entire society of the approaching Jubilee, even if it was 49 years away. 
Every real estate deal was to take this release into consideration. And then in verse 20 through 22, the objections of the people are addressed. Well, what will we eat if we don't plant crops? Especially what will we eat if we have to go two years without planting any crops? And it's here that the faith of the people is tested. Hashem tells the people that he has commanded blessing on the sixth year to provide enough of a bounty to provide food in the year in which no crops are planted. Now this was a test. It's a test of faith. Do you believe that this will happen? Do you trust God and his blessing that he will care for you if you take your hand from the plow because of his command? But more than that, what is the natural human response when we're blessed with abundance, especially if you're a businessman? I don't know about in the ancient Near East, but in the modern mind, many of us, we'd sell the whole thing and just keep the profits. We would look to get richer. And those who took this attitude, well, then they would look to make a profit in the next year as well. Otherwise, well, their extra bounty wasn't extra at all. It was simply enough. And enough's not blessing, is it? It's riches that are blessing. And this seems to be the attitude that Israel took. We just read in Second Chronicles that the reason for the exile in Babylon was because the people had not let their land rest for 70 Shemitah cycles. And so the land was to get a rest for 70 years to make up for that oversight by Israel. Exile was the prescription for the transgression of this command. In verse 25, we read of a man who had become poor and sold some of his land in order to make ends meet. If there's a close relative who's able to do so, they're to pay to redeem the land back to the one who sold it. Or alternatively, if the man suddenly finds himself with enough money to do so, then he always has the right to redeem the property himself, to return it to his own possession. But if there is no kinsman redeemer and this man does not suddenly find himself rich, then in the Jubilee, the land was to be returned to the one who sold it. If not him, then to his family and his clan. But there are a few exceptions to this. Within a walled city, if property is sold, then the property is sold. There's no right of redemption and the property doesn't return in the Jubilee. You have one year to redeem it. A walled city is not a place of farming, but rather it's business as usual in the city. The city is its own domain, and walled cities were built for the purpose of providing fortifications throughout the nations. If releases such as this occurred in the cities, well, it wouldn't take long before an enemy would figure out a way to exploit the weakness that such an action would create, and then everyone would be in danger. But a village in which there's not a wall, well, it's not a military outpost. It's a food outpost. Nearly all of those living in the village, they would have had their lives determined by the need to support the actions of the farmers or to actually engage in farming themselves. Now, there's another exception here, an exception to the exception. And the exception to the exception is the Levite in the land. The Levite is a special case because the Levite did not get an inheritance like the rest of the tribes. Instead, they received a series of cities throughout the country. Numbers 35, 1 through 8. And Hashem spoke to Moshe in the desert plains of Moab by the Jordan of Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they shall give the Levite cities to dwell in from their inheritance of their possession, 
Also give the Levites open land around the cities, and they shall have the cities to dwell in, and their open land for their cattle, and for their herds, and for all their livestock. And the open land of the cities which you give the Levite are from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side two thousand cubits, and on the south side two thousand cubits, and on the west side two thousand cubits, and on the north side two thousand cubits. And the city is in the middle. This is to them the open land for the cities. And the cities which you give to the Levite are the six cities of refuge, which you give to the manslayer to flee to. And to these you add forty-two cities. All the cities which you give to the Levites are forty-eight, these with their open land. And the cities which you give are from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe you give many, and from the smaller you give few. Each one gives some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each inherits. All the Levites had were walled cities, and so their cities did not conform to the exception of redemption. They always had the right of redemption and release in the Jubilee. And Levites could not sell the land that surrounded their cities. It was theirs and could not be transferred to another, even temporarily. After this discussion of the land and what is to happen to the land, the text then shifts to the topic of the people. Because Jubilee release was not just about land, but about return, release, and freedom. And so first is addressed the man who has become poor and has lost his land. A man who is facing hard times is not to be oppressed. He is to be traded the same as a ger, the, the friendly foreigner who has joined themselves to Hashem. Or like a Toshav, someone who does not wish to be part of the nation, but who does live in your land. A brother who has become poor is not to be exploited to gain something for yourself. You can loan to him, but do not gain a profit of interest from him. Then the text shifts to the man who's fallen on hard times and has chosen to sell himself into servitude in order to cover his debts. When this happens, this man is not to be treated as a slave. He is a man of honor despite his position, and so he is not a slave. In fact, the word used here is the word shakir, a hireling. This is the same word used to describe a mercenary or even a hired animal. And just as the land is returned to the tribe of its possession in the Jubilee, the poor man who has sold himself into servitude is also to be set free in the year of Jubilee. They, their children, are to be returned to their homeland, the land of their tribe. The family gets the chance to start once again. And what is the reasoning for this? Well, it's because Israel served as slaves in Egypt. There should be a respect for a man that God has set free to not return him to his slavery. Now, we've already read that the reason for the Babylonian exile was because the people did not allow the land to rest. And so God made a way for the land to enjoy the rest that was due to it by taking the people out of the land. But when we read Jeremiah, we find that the same attitude that was exercised in regards to the land was also exercised in regards to the people. Jeremiah 34, 8-20 The word which came to Jeremiah from Hashem, after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem, to proclaim release to them, that everyone was to set free his male and female slave, the Hebrew man and the Hebrew woman. No one was to keep a Jew, his brother, enslaved. And when all the heads of all the people who had come into the covenant heard that each one was to set free his male and female slaves and not keep them enslaved any longer, they obeyed and released them. 
But afterward they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return, whom they had set free, and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. Therefore the word of Hashem came to Jeremiah from Hashem, saying, Thus says Hashem, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with you and your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years each one should set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me nor incline their ear. And you recently turned and did what was right in my eyes, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. But you turned back and profaned my name, and each one of you took back his male and female slaves whom he had set free at their pleasure, and brought them into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Therefore thus says Hashem, You have not obeyed me in proclaiming release each one to his brother and each one to his neighbor. See, I am proclaiming release to you, declares Hashem, to the sword and to the pestilence and to the famine. And I shall make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and I shall give the men who are transgressing my covenant, who have not established the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the heads of Judah and the heads of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I shall give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, and their corpses shall be for food to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth. Just as with the land, the people had not kept the Shemitah and Jubilee in regards to their slaves. And so King Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people for them to release their slaves, and the people did so for a time. After a short time of cooking their own food and washing their own clothes, those who had owned servants, they went out and they returned their servants by force. And it is this that is given as the reason for the destruction that occurred in Israel prior to their captivity and exile. The people had not given freedom, though that was the command. The people had not treated their brothers as if they had honor, but treated them as any other slave. And their covenant, it proved the point. The people, they agreed to this covenant as a public show, but when it came down to it, their actions revealed that what they really thought of their brothers who served them. Their actions revealed that they were servants in name only. In reality, they were slaves. They were not free to go at the appointed time. They were too valuable as servants to the ruling class. And so the decree comes down on Israel from Hashem. Because they did not practice the release that they had not only been commanded to do, but that they had each taken a covenant to uphold. Because they had broken their word in releasing their slaves, then the people of Judah were to be released as well. Released to pestilence famine, and sword. They failed to live up to the unspoken expectation from Genesis 4. Yes, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are to look out for the best interests of your brothers. You are not to exploit your brothers for your own benefit. And this reveals the heart of the Torah, and it's what we talked about last week. Justice is to be practiced within Israel, as well as mercy and compassion. These things are central to the Torah that Hashem gives His people. Now, I say that, but then we read the very next passage in this chapter. Any person from the nations that is brought as a slave is to be a slave 
for all time. They are not to be released in the year of Jubilee, but they are to remain as slaves. Now, to our modern ears, this sounds harsh. We wonder why God didn't just do away with the institution of slavery if he's making the perfect laws and rules. Why did he not only make an allowance for it, but then command that it is perpetual for slaves from other nations when a Hebrew is allowed to go free? Well, to address this first, we must address the concept of slavery. Now, the slavery that is an allowance was made for in the Bible is not the same kind of slavery that was practiced in the West. In fact, when we read the details of slavery in the Bible, there are very specific commands that any slave, whether a fellow Israelite or of the nations, was to be treated fairly and compassionately. Exodus 21.20, when a man strikes his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall certainly be punished. Killing a slave was a severe offense. It was not something to just be laughed off. The word translated as punished in my translation is the word nakam. And that word means to be avenged. The death of the slave shall be avenged. It's just after this passage that the first instance of eye for eye and tooth for tooth in judgment is addressed in scripture that we read last week. Let's read it again. Exodus 21, 26 through 27. And when a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he is to let him go for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he is to let him go for the sake of his tooth. Permanent damage to a slave buys that slave's freedom. Oh, but wait, wait, wait. That says manservant and female servant. Well, it's the same word used here in Exodus 21 as in Leviticus 25. So how about Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16? It says, You do not hand over to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. Let him dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses, within one of your gates where it is pleasing for him. Do not oppress him. The idea is that if a slave escapes his master, then the master was cruel to begin with. Don't force him to return to a cruel master. Or if we could turn to the New Testament, there's not a lot of direction towards slave owners in the New Testament, but there are a few passages, such as Colossians 4.1. Masters, give your slaves what is righteous and fair, knowing that you also have a master in the heavens. You are slaves and servants of God, so treat your slaves as you want God to treat you. Ephesians 6.9. And masters, do the same for them. Refrain from threatening, knowing that your own master also is in the heavens, and that there is no partiality with him. The New Testament principles of slave ownership are just as merciful. Now the question always comes up, but why didn't God just outlaw slavery altogether? And I would follow up with, well, why didn't God just outlaw divorce altogether? Neither situation is a perfect situation. And what the Torah describes is not rules for a perfect world, but rather how to do the best in the world that we have. And Yeshua answers this question about divorce, and I believe the same answer applies to slavery. Matthew 19, 18, and he said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Men have hard hearts. If you come to the Torah expecting a perfect world to be described in its pages, then you misunderstand the purpose of the Torah. The Torah was never intended to be a description of how things work in a perfect world. 
It's a description of how to live as righteously as possible in a fallen and corrupt world. And we will see that demonstrated clearly, I think, before we finish. Then comes the situation of when a Hebrew man sells himself to a foreigner. In this case, the contract of sale should always contain the right of redemption, and it's incumbent upon the family to buy out this man's contract from the foreign owner. And then once again we read that when a man who has sold himself into slavery is redeemed, just as with the land, the price of redemption is calculated based on the number of years left until the man would be given his freedom anyway. And this is the Torah of the Shemitah and Jubilee years, a command that was never kept in Israel at all, ever. One that is too uncomfortable and requires just too much faith to walk out. One that many of us, I would suggest that nearly all of us, would have a hard time living out even today. Now, there are two things, well, there's multiple things that should catch our attention as we go through this chapter, but I want to I wanna focus on two of those. Two things that we see crop up over and over again throughout this chapter. Things that are then carried on throughout the remainder of the Bible. Uh, the first can be found throughout the instructions in various forms, and that is the uneven application of the Jubilee. We see this in multiple places throughout these instructions. Walled cities are treated different than open land and villages. Levites are treated differently from everyone else. And the nations are treated differently from those who are part of Israel. And this is something that, as I said, is foundational to the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is not for the world at large other than to serve as proof of the existence of a God of mercy, justice, and love to a world without these things. The message of the Bible is for those who are part of the nation of Israel. The hope of the Bible is for those who join themselves to Hashem and throw themselves on His mercy. The blessings of the Bible are for those who obey in faith. The good things of the Bible, they're not for everyone. And that's the picture that we get here. The people from the nations do not experience redemption and release. They do not experience freedom in the same way that believers do. And this seems harsh to many, and it is. We all deserve only death from God. It is his grace and his mercy that allows us to continue to live at all. It's his breath in our lungs. It's not simple air. We owe him everything, and he owes us nothing at all. But in his mercy, he extends grace and hope to us. And it is up to us whether we would like to accept his invitation into his kingdom so that we can take part of the good that is found as part of his nation. And the second recurring thing that we read over and over again in this chapter is the good that belongs to the people of Israel who are willing to let go in God's timing and let him provide for them. And the rewards that we read of is this, redemption, return, and release, freedom from yokes of slavery, redemption or payment for a debt that's owed, and return to the place where you belong among the people of God. These things are the terms that are spoken of throughout the rest of the Bible. In fact, it is this that Yeshua calls on when he announces his ministry publicly for the first time. Luke four sixteen through 21 
And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and according to his practice he went into the congregation on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and having unrolled the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of Hashem is upon me, because he has appointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim release of the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to send away the crushed ones with a release, to proclaim the acceptable year of Hashem. And having rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the congregation were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been filled in your hearing. Release of captives, release to the oppressed, the acceptable year of Hashem. This passage is packed with jubilee language. Now, there's something going on here that's important, but first, let's ask the question. Why were the eyes of the entire congregation fixed on Yeshua when he read this? Has anyone ever noticed this before? He read from the scroll of Isaiah. Now, why do we get the feeling of this awkward silence moment that Yeshua fills with, Today this scripture has been filled in your hearing? Did anyone else notice that Yeshua added something to what was read from the scroll? The section of Isaiah that Yeshua read from is this, Isaiah 61, 1-2. The Spirit of the Master Hashem is upon me, because Hashem has appointed me to bring the good news to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Hashem and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Do you notice what was added? In the midst of the list of those who this prophecy is addressing, Yeshua drops recovery of sight to the blind. This is not part of the Isaiah passage that Yeshua read. Now the question is, did he just throw this in out of nowhere? Or is there something more going on here? Is it possible that Yeshua added in another passage from Isaiah as he read, one that speaks on a very similar topic? Isaiah 42, 6-7 says, I, Hashem, have called you in righteousness, and I strengthen your hand to guard you, and to give you as a covenant for, to a people, for a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Both of these passages speak of freedom for prisoners, and both are prophecies of the Messiah. And in his public announcement, Yeshua combines both passages together to announce his ministry. And these passages equate the mission of the Messiah to what was accomplished in Israel on the year of Jubilee. Freedom for the captive. Who is the captive in Isaiah? Well, it's those who are being sent into exile. Those taken captive and led away to live among the nations. Those who had failed to live up to this Torah of freedom themselves. Those who had taken others captive and who had not let them go when they should have. Those who treated their brothers and sisters as slaves and not equals, despite their station. Heal the brokenhearted. Does this mean that you will not be brokenhearted? I mean, let's face it, we've all had our hearts broken at one time or another, right? When the girl dumped you or the guy left you? Uh, this isn't what's meant by the term brokenhearted, though, in the Bible. The fact is in that until around 500 CE, 
The heart was thought to be the seat of your intellect and emotions. The brain, well, it was nothing more than simply a heat sink for the body until well after the time that the entire Bible was codified. So brokenhearted doesn't mean only a person who's sad, but it means anyone whose thoughts or minds is broken. And let's face it, that means all of us. Not a single one of us has our minds in order, which is why we read this in 2 Corinthians 10.5, overthrowing reasonings and every high matter that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, taking captive every thought to make it obedient to the Messiah. When we hold our thoughts as the things that determine the reality of a situation, we would, in the first century thought, have a broken heart. Now, this is a purely Christian ideal, but as we've seen, there is a difference between the nations and those who are sons of Abraham by faith. Next was recovery of sight to the blind. Now, this seems simple as Yeshua healed many blind people, but that's not what's being meant when Isaiah uses this phrase in chapter 42. Let me read it again, Isaiah 42, 6-7. I, Hashem, have called you in righteousness, and I strengthen your hand and guard you to give you for a covenant to the people for a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. The blind in this passage is those who are prisoners, those who are sitting in the darkness of a prison cell. And in the New Testament we read that those who are in darkness of the prison cell are each one of us before Yeshua. Ephesians 5, 8, For you were once darkness, but you are now light in the Master. Walk as children of the light. And who are the prisoners? Galatians 3, 22-23, But the Scripture has shut up all mankind under sin, that the promise by faith in Yeshua the Messiah might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were being guarded under the Torah, having been shut up for the faith, being about to be revealed. Now, this is a confusing passage, as is most of Galatians, and there's a lot of background to this book and passage that really should be understood before dissecting this. But I'm going to try for a quick explanation here. According to Paul here, the Torah was given so that sin could be defined, so that people could know what is sin and what is not in God's eyes. And the Torah condemns us all as each one of us has sinned and made us prisoners of sin, as we sit guarded by the Torah in our sin prisons, until faith could be revealed to open the doors of the prison and to set us free. That faith being revealed in Yeshua, he set us all, prisoners of sin, under the guard of the Torah, free to come out into the light of day. Unfortunately, too many use this verse to say, see, we've been set free, there is no Torah. The Torah is what kept us in the prison of sin. But to this, I would pose one question. When a person is released from prison, does the law that condemned that person to prison suddenly go away? Does their freedom mean that the law that condemned them in the first place is no more? Well, let it not be. The Torah was necessary to define sin for us, and now that we've been freed from the darkness of the prison and we walk in the light, we are eternally grateful to our Redeemer that has returned us to our rightful places as sons and daughters of God. But the Torah, the law that condemned us in the first place, is still in effect. It continues to condemn those who have not been set free, and it continues to guide us who have been set free.
to send away the crushed ones with the release. Now this term is a repeat of the previous. The crushed ones in Isaiah are again prisoners who are being set free. This declaration of Yeshua's ministry begins is all about redemption, release, and freedom. It's all about being given a new start and becoming a new creation. The primary ideals of the Jubilee. But just as is the case with so much of Yeshua's ministries, these things are not always physical realities, but spiritual. How many literal prisoners did Yeshua set free? The case could be made for one. Barabbas. And that's all. And yet so many were set free from prisons of sickness and prisons of disease and even the prison of death. And we've all been given the opportunity to be set free from the prison of sin. The oppressed Jewish nation was not set free from the Romans, but rather the oppressed humanity was set free from the oppression of the enemy. But not all. This freedom is not in effect for everyone. It is in effect only for those who have joined themselves to Israel through the Messiah of Israel. Only sons and daughters of Abraham by faith are eligible. All others, everyone from the nations, they remain in chains. One of the central ideals of the Jubilee as we read through this chapter is the idea of redemption. The kinsman who delivers a person or land back to where it should be. And in this idea of redemption, we recognize that the moment that redemption is acted out towards a person, that person experiences the jubilee, not on the national and not on the yearly scale, but in that moment of redemption, jubilee is accomplished. Freedom, release, and return are accomplished. And that is what it means to be redeemed by our kinsman, Redeemer Yeshua. We have joined ourselves to Israel in faith. We have been set free from the slavery of sin and death. And we can return to our place among our brothers. Redemption. Jubilee. This is the first step as we derish chai. So seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.